Uh, please turn with me to Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This is uh, not a traditional Christmas story per se, but it's more of a kind of a theology of, of Christmas, a commentary on how each person of the Trinity is active in the Christmas event. Uh, and so I invite you to follow along with me as I read uh, from, the gospel, or from the letter to the Galatians. <clears throat> Starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were, who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are beyond grateful for your word in which we learn all that we need to know for, for salvation, for, for knowing Jesus personally, and I pray, Father, that uh, this morning, you would open our hearts, help us to see you with spiritual eyes the great truths of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I, I really appreciate the first couple of lines of that hymn, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, it says, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Uh, that is really the, the kind of the Christmas message that I I'm delivering to you today. It's not my message, it's the message of the, the scriptures, and that uh, Christmas is about that, about being released from our fears, being released from our sins, finding our rest in Christ. This is appropriate, especially as we come off of yet another shooting this week, uh, what is being called a terrorist attack in California. Uh, I don't know if you have seen the front page that The New York Daily News came out with, but it said in huge lettering, God isn't fixing this. It's as if to say, God doesn't care, we're alone, he's not really interested. And it's whether it's that shooting or whether it's the the attacks in Paris, the the shooting in Chattanooga back in July, we, we kind of feel like hope is maybe in short supply right now with all that's going on in our world. And it is natural, I think, to be crippled by fear and anxiety and to agonize over how this is going to be fixed and what are we going to do. Well, we must anchor ourselves in God's Word. Because in God's Word, He says, I did fix it, and I am fixing it. He's fixing it through the greatest plan in history, the plan of redemption. Our Trinitarian God is is not just fixing what's broken, He is making new that which is broken. And in in a very fitting, very Christmassy way, this plan is a family plan. And Galatians 4 is a beautiful description of of how this plan works, how God works in time and space to make this happen. But first, I want to give you a little background 
If you've studied the book of Galatians, you know that a big topic in this book that Paul writes about is, is how do we become sons? How does that work? How do, how do we gain a, a place in God's spiritual family? And this is in reaction to a big problem in the Galatian church, which is uh, the Judaizers who were coming along and saying, well, in order for you to be a son, in order for you to be an heir, it's fine if you believe in Jesus and all, but you really need to do that and... You need to keep the Mosaic law. That's what's most important. And so Paul is coming along and he's saying, this is foolishness. Who has, be, who has bewitched you into thinking this? That's what he says. And I kind of think of it like, you know, if you're on an airplane, you buy your, your first class ticket, of course. And uh, not me, I fly coach. Sometimes I feel like I should just be on the wing. But anyway, I, I feel like if you, it's like if you're on an airplane you get up in the air, you've taken off, you're, you're in cruising altitude, and all of a sudden you get up and you're like, all right, everybody, let's start, let's start flapping. Okay, we've got, we got to do this. We've got we to flap our, our arms in order to help this airplane fly. Because if we don't help it, we're going to fall. We're going to crash. It's kind of just like pointless, right? I mean, not only would you be really silly looking, but you cause a lot of confusion amongst the people on the plane. And that, that's kind of what Paul is saying is that, you know, if you have Jesus, you're on the airplane and you have, you, you didn't get yourself on the airplane and you have really no way to help make it fly. You're just kind of there, sitting, resting. It's not possible for us to help Jesus with salvation. Prior to being made alive in Christ, we are spiritually dead. This is what Ephesians Two says, one and two, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not mere spiritual misfits or orphans, because that would imply that we're still alive. We are spiritually dead. We can't be, we can't make ourselves sons of God, heirs to the kingdom, because dead people can't do anything about their condition. So we need to be made alive. We are entirely passive in this whole process. And so Paul, in chapter 4 of Galatians, is inviting us to take a seat in, our, in the airplane and rest our arms and just chill and observe what God is doing and what he has done to transform us from spiritually dead to spiritually alive sons of God. And the first thing that Paul says is that this plan, this, this perfect plan of God unfolded in the perfect timing of God the Father. Uh, he uses this word fullness, the fullness of time. It's, uh, the Greek word is pleroma, and it's a, a completeness. It's, it's right. It's just right. God enacted the plan of redemption at, at exactly the right time. And there's a, a lot of layers to what that means. Uh, but the first is, is simply that God is sovereign over time. God is not bound by time in any way, shape, or form. He is, there is no restrictions for him when it comes to time. Uh, a year or a day is to a, a thousand years, a thousand years is to a day, whatever. God is not bound in any way by time. He can act in time however he feels. If he had decided that Jesus needed to come a thousand years before he did, then that's what would have happened. If he decided that Jesus needed to come last week, that's what would have happened. What would have happened? God is sovereign over time. Nothing could stop him from sending his son to be born whenever he wanted, wherever he wanted, and that's what makes it complete. 
That's what, that's what makes it the fullness of time. It's when God said, it's time. That's one layer. But the second layer is more of a, a secondary cause type layer. What were the conditions around the event that made it just right? I mean, in other words, why, why did God choose 2,000 years ago, r- roughly, around the time when uh, the Roman Empire was occupying Israel? Well, part of it, one clue, um, if we look back to, to Galatians 4, 1 and 2, Paul compares the law to a guardian uh, or, or like a, a tutor. Uh, this is this practice in the Roman world where uh, a man would hire a guardian or a tutor to, to care for, watch over his son and heir until the day when his heir would come to the age where he can receive his inheritance. So this guardian is, is, uh, is teaching him, is caring for him, is protecting him, pointing him towards his future inheritance. Paul compares the law to this, um, saying that was the purpose of the law. And apparently after about 1,300 years of, of being the primary function of, of the Jewish religion, the law had served its purpose. God's saying it was, it was kind of just done. It had done what it needed to do. And what it needed to do was not to save, but to point people to the Savior. To point people towards Christ. And he's saying now it is fulfilled. It is, it is time for Christ to come. It's time for that which the law pointed to to be here. Now we still need the law, of course. We this doesn't nullify the, the usefulness of the law. The law still points us to Christ, still points us to our great need for him. It shows us how to please God in obedience, how to love our neighbors, etc. But now the law is fulfilled in Christ. It points to what he has already done. It was never meant to save. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end for preparation for the coming of Christ. As Galatians 3.23 says, it's there in your bulletin, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was to hold us captive, to, to make us see our great need for someone to set us free, to make us see our great need, and also to long for a Savior. So the law has reached its kind of expiration date, and that's the second layer, but there's a third layer of what's going on. You know, the, the, the history and the culture of, of uh, this time was, was ripe for this Christmas event. Israel, of course, was under Roman political control, uh, but also the Roman Empire was heavily influenced by Greek culture. So you've got kind of two different big empirical cultures happening in this one little area. Because of the Romans, you had great conditions for the spread of news. Uh, Roman roads were the best road system that anyone had ever seen. And not only this, but they were guarded by Roman soldiers, so people could travel safely without great fear of of being robbed or beaten or or killed. Uh, So you could spread news quickly. Also, the Greeks, the Greek influence meant there was a, a common Greek language that most people spoke. And so you could do, go from one country to another uh, and still be able to talk to uh, the people there and share news with them. And then also, if you're a geography nerd like me, you'll notice that Israel is at the crossroads of three major continents. 
in that, in that time, the only three continents that people knew about. And so there's this trade route that goes through Israel, and you can literally get to Africa or Europe or other parts of Asia rather quickly when it comes to travel time. And so these, these things and other conditions we won't go into make this kind of a fullness of conditions for the gospel to spread some 30 years after the birth of Christ. And so God, you see, is orchestrating time and place and culture and language and history to converge towards one great purpose. And that's how God always works. God works through history that way, doing whatever he needs to do to make things happen. You saw it after, the, after Jesus was born. He orchestrated the, the star to lead the Magi to him so they could come and present their gifts. And then he orchestrated an angel, a, a messenger, to come to warn Mary and Joseph that Herod would be uh, on the attack looking to kill male children, and, and they were able to escape to Egypt. Don't you wish you had that kind of power and timing? It's great for jokes. But we, we can't bend time and space to our will as much as we might try. This is why Advent is, is so wonderful for our souls, because it is an invitation to stop and to wait, to pause. Christmas, as much of any time of year, can be a time when we, we've just wasted away with business. We get to the new year, and we're like, man, where did December go? We're just busy from party to party to function. And by the way, you can hear more about that tonight if you come back for the uh, children's Christmas pageant, which is titled Too Busy. That, that many O's, Too Busy. Christmas is a time when we wait on God. We wait on His perfect timing. We depend on Him to be the one to fix things as a part of His perfect plan of redemption. And His son Jesus, our, our perfect older brother, is right at the center of this plan. Um, though he is a mere infant at Christmas, he's born perfectly qualified to execute God's family plan. So why is he qualified? Well, one, he's sent forth by God. He is God's only begotten son. Jesus is the sent one of God. That Greek word for sent is ex apostello. Sounds a little bit like apostle, a sent one, a messenger, but he is the sent one of God, the eternally begotten son from eternity with the Father that's John 1.1, 1, 1, which says that he is in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also, he is the one in which the fullness of the deity dwells. Again, that fullness uh, is used in Colossians 1.19 and 20 there in your bulletin. It's the same word that we spoke of earlier, the word pleroma. It means that Jesus is complete in his godliness. He is not partially God. He's not half God and half man. He is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And the fact that he is fully man is made clear here by the statement that he was born of a woman. Here's your Captain Obvious moment of the morning. After Adam and Eve, everyone has been born of a woman. But only Jesus was born of a woman as the perfect son of God. Fully God and fully man. And because he is fully God and fully man, Jesus fulfills the promises, starting with Genesis 3.15. The promises, the, the, the prophecies of the Savior. Genesis 3.15, there in your bulletin, 
Remember, God is, is speaking to Adam and Eve after pronouncing curses on them for sin. He says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus fulfills this. He is the Redeemer, the one who would come to end the curse, to crush the head of the serpent. And this Redeemer would come through the line of Eve. We're told this in Genesis. We're told that he would be a human. And so being human also means that he knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. Christmas is supposed to be a time of of joy and cheer. But for for many, it can be a time when, when because of all that's going, all the joy and cheer around you, your pain, your suffering becomes magnified. You are missing loved ones. You, you are lonely. You face difficult financial or, or health problems. And, and these things, again, they seem greater at Christmas. The, the pain is greater. But Christmas means that Jesus has been there. That he knows loss. He knows loneliness. He knows pain. He knows temptation. And he knows what it's like to be afraid. He is our compassionate, older brother who relates to us because he is human too. Another aspect, though, of his humanity is that he's born under the law. And this, this makes him fully qualified to redeem us because we're born under the law and we're obligated to keep the law, but we fail utterly. And so we are cursed. As Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Jesus was born under those same obligations, and yet he fulfilled every aspect of the law of God, succeeding in every area where we have failed. And on the cross, he took that that Genesis 3 curse for sin upon himself, freeing us from the curse of sin and crediting us with his righteousness as if we had perfectly kept the law. This is what Galatians 3.13 says, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The most painful part of the cross for Christ was his rejection by the Father. He not only took on the curse of sin, he also took our rejection, our separation from God the Father. He took that upon himself. So the core of this family plan of God, this family plan of redemption, the core of it is that Jesus Christ, our older brother, became an orphan on the cross. And then died on the cross so that we might become sons of God. It's a plan with, with, again, multiple layers. Jesus wasn't born at Christmas just to, just to save, just to redeem. Uh, we, when we talk about that, we talk about justification, being made right in God's sight. That's redemption. And, and redemption, that, that whole concept in the Roman world, was the practice that, that someone could go and purchase the freedom of a slave, and, and just say simply, you are free. 
And that's, that's redemption. That, that's only one aspect, though. And a lot of times we think of Christmas, that's all we think about. We just think that Jesus came to be our Savior. He did, but there's more. Adoption, using that term, brings this to a whole new level. You see, when a man in the Roman world had no son or, or heir, he would often purchase a slave's freedom, redeeming the slave, and then adopting the slave, making that former slave the man's son and heir. And this is what God has done for believers through Christ. So again, Christmas is more than just a plan to save. It is God's plan to lavish his grace and love upon us through Jesus, who has made possible our adoption into God's family. And truly is one only by grace. Adoption implies, linking to the, the, the Roman practice of adoption, where, where, where we're talking about slaves being adopted here, it implies that this is totally passive on our parts. The slave had no part in going from slave to free to adopted son and heir. And neither do we when it comes to being a part of the family of God. We get that status of son and heir solely by grace through faith. Now as a side note, I wanted to briefly mention this. I feel like it's very important. You might be wondering, why is Paul only using the word son? Why is he not using the word daughter as well? Is this not exclusive? Well, daughters in the Roman world, as you may know, did not receive an inheritance. Only sons did. And I'm not making a comment on that, whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the way it was. So, but Paul, a little bit earlier in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, makes the, the, the well-known statement that there are, there's now no more male or female that all in Christ are heirs to the kingdom. And so when Paul uses this word son here, he's not trying to say that only sons become heirs of the kingdom. He's saying that all who are in Christ have an inheritance in the kingdom. Sons and daughters, men and women, Jew and Greek, whoever is in Christ. All in Christ are heirs to the kingdom. But then how do we get this inheritance? How does this work? How does it actually come about in our lives? It's by the perfect presence of the Holy Spirit. In verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about how our, how our redemption and our adoption are, are applied to us. And then there in your bulletin, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, take it a little deeper. There he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, the, the promise, the assurance, the seal that we will receive what God has promised, the promise of salvation. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He says, The Son's purpose was to secure for us the legal status of our sonship. But by contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. So again, the Holy Spirit provides the inheritance and also the seal of assurance of future fullness. God knew 
we would have doubts, knew we would struggle with different things that would cause us to to want to fall away. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says in the book of John, it's better that he comes. You have him always. Now, even though the inheritance and fullness is eternal, this is the great thing, our, our, the fullness, the completeness of, of what Jesus is promising us is eternal life with him, being face-to-face with him, we actually begin to experience this now. In this life, it's not the fullness of it, but it's a taste through the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? In the Advent before Christ's coming, what does it look like to, to taste our inheritance? Well, verse 6 says that, he, that Christ enables us, sends, us, sends his Spirit to us, so that we might cry, Abba, Father. Now this word for cry is a, is a loud, kind of a longing, wailing cry, a, something that shows a deep desire for something. Simply put, we begin to long for the things of God. Our hearts change. We want what God wants. And then we talk to Him about it. We pray. We pray in the Spirit because often when we sit down, have things to pray about, we, we don't find the words to say. And Romans 8.26 tells us that the, the Spirit prays even for us with longings and, and groanings that we don't understand. And, and then third, we pray with assurance. Again, Another Keller quote, he says, Just as a young child simply assumes that a parent loves them and is there for them, and never doubts the security and openness of daddy's strong arms, so Christians can have an overwhelming boldness and certainty that God loves them endlessly. I want to point out to you, and I hope this does not sound arrogant, but No one has this without the Holy Spirit, without a relationship with Christ, without having been elected by the Father. No one has that type of assurance in life. So you have no assurance in times of anxiety, no assurance in times of fear. Maybe you can have some kind of earthly insurance or assurance, but ultimately nothing beyond that. You know, I kind of think of it like, like maybe kids, you'll understand this. You ever do something wrong and you know you've done wrong, you know mom and dad are going to find out. It's just a matter of when and, and what they're going to do to you. You have that kind of hanging over your head for a while. Isn't that a terrible feeling? I don't like that feeling. Maybe you are going through something that, like that right now where you, you're awaiting a test result or... Uh, something that's just up in the air and you, you're dreading it. You have anxiety over what's going to happen. And, and I, I just want to make the comment that anybody who does not have the Holy Spirit, who does not know Christ, ultimately that is how they feel about life in general. Maybe, maybe they have varying degrees of how in tune they are to that reality, but that is the truth. You go through life wondering if you're enough. Well, sons and heirs of God who have the Holy Spirit do not have to wonder about that. We know we're not enough. That's very clear to us. This is why I'm saying this is not an, I'm not saying this out of arrogance. I'm not saying this out of a boastfulness. 
We know we're not enough. But we also know that we've been purchased by the one who is enough. And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Non-Christians, if you're, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, you need to know this, that this is all about grace. Yes, you're not enough. And no, you can't do anything about that. But we want you to know this hope that we have. Because we know the one who has done something about it. We want you to know him too. It is a, this hope is a persevering hope. It is a hope that does not fail when there are shootings, when there are terrorist attacks, when there is racism or brokenness or refugee crises or whatever is going on in our world that is causing us to be fearful. It is a persevering hope that does not fail in those times. If you do not have this hope, if you do not know Jesus Christ, I would invite you to believe today. Take the step of faith that it takes to trust him. Confess your sins to him. Repent of your wrongdoing and follow Jesus. If you are a Christian, I would invite you to not fear. To continue without fear, without worry or anxiety. Cast your anxieties upon God. Continue in great hope. We, as sons and heirs of God, we have no reason to hide in fear and and cower into a cocoon of safety and comfort. There is no reason to fear to the point where we retreat from society. Instead, we are called to graciously intervene in in a way that is somewhat similar to the way God has intervened in our lives. We're called to move towards brokenness and pain with the message of the gospel, with the message of hope. Miroslav Volf, the theologian from Yale, he says that in Advent we wait, not lazily killing time, but busily preparing the world for the coming of the newborn king and the kingdom of his love. It's what Advent is about, according to him, but more and more we are preparing with our message, a world that is increasingly skeptical and offended by Jesus. It's a world that doesn't want a true Christmas message. It's a world that wants a Christmas message that sounds like something you see in Elf. Be nice. Keep the peace. Sing loud and spread Christmas cheer. Don't talk about religion. Being a, an heir, a son... Sharing the, cru- the true Christmas message can cost us. But again, we need not fear the loss of earthly comfort or security because that's not our inheritance. Losing earthly comfort, losing earthly security, feeling pain and suffering, that is not real loss if you know Jesus. Because your inheritance is an eternal dwelling place with God. So fearlessly tell the world that God is fixing it. He is making broken things new. He has intervened. He's brought about redemption. He's initiated his kingdom. Do not let fear and anxiety cripple your witness. 
Be anchored in God's word. Let God build boldness into your life so that Christmas can be a time when we confidently tell the world that Christmas means God is fixing things. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when you will come again and make all things new. And until that day comes, we ask for your help. We depend on you, we, we look to you, we trust you. Give us the strength to be faithful to you. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.